0: Welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, fresh on the heels of our Kirk Douglas tribute, somebody else has died recently. Max von Sydow, the uh, very famous and very prolific Swedish actor who uh, died at the ripe old age of 90 who is probably best known among horror fans for his role maybe in The Exorcist, yeah. although he's been in a lot of horror movies. Quite a chunk of his career was playing villains, but early on he he got his start doing films with uh, Ingmar Bergman, and maybe one of the most famous ones would be The Seventh Seal, uh, which is just iconic with Ingmar Bergman. It was the one that kind of put him on the map, and, and in that movie he plays a guy who plays chess with death. You can probably picture that in your head. That uh, screenshot comes up a lot in film history. Yeah. So the movie that we picked for him was Needful Things because he has a very prominent role in this. Uh, It's based on a Stephen King book. And of course, we're both big Stephen King fans. And so this is the one that we settled on for this week. We're real happy to do it. I had never seen this movie before. I had thought that it was a miniseries before it was a movie, but... Some of my reading online pointed out that maybe it was a movie before it was a miniseries and that the TNT network had commissioned the director, uh, who, by the way, is Charlton Heston's son, to add in a bunch of stuff that they ended up cutting from the theatrical release to make a three hour And so that was an additional thing that was done after the movie was released theatrically. I don't know,
1: Craig, do you have a little bit
0: more information on that?
1: Uh, Not really, only that they did that, but the director, I don't know, refused, I guess, to officially call it a director's cut and for legal reasons that... Uh, version, the three hour version has never been made commercially available outside of airing on television so Mm. the version that we watched is the original theatrical cut and I have to say I'm kind of glad because at two hours it seemed long enough Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I I honestly can see, I I was talking to my partner last night and I said, you know, I think that this movie, or excuse me, the book actually would make for a great limited series on Netflix or some other platform Uh, because I think that they could get a lot into the more individual stories of what happens because this is about an entire community and m- multiple members of this community have different experiences with the primary antagonist played by Von Sita in a limited series form each hour could kind of deal with a different story and then it could all kind of culminate at the end with this two hour movie it kind of felt like they had to kind of rush some of these yeah. Scenes and experiences, and I also felt like the connectivity within the community wasn't as apparent as it could have been if it had been larger scope. Yes. But that's all in hindsight. I, I, you know, the movie as it is, I think it works fine. I just think maybe in a different medium it could potentially work better, but this is what we've got, and this is what we'll talk about and I'm excited to talk about it cuz there's some cool stuff going on here.
0: Yeah, there's there's some good stuff. I'm with you. I it felt long. It it really felt long for me and I think that's because in a way it got a little repetitive. Yeah. in that uh, it was kind of the same thing over and over again after a while and it and it played out quite slowly. There's always something going on, but It takes its time, not to the extent of like being boring, but maybe just to the extent of I kind of know what's going to happen. Okay, this other person bought a thing. Now they're going to have to do a thing and that thing's going to cause somebody else to do something. And then it's like this chain that just kind of keeps going and going. Now, I'd read the book uh, also. I enjoyed the book. It wasn't my favorite Stephen King book, but uh, there was something kind of light about the book a little bit like some of Stephen King's material is really dark. Mm-hmm. A lot, duh. That's like overstating, uh, understating it. Right. But he does have a range of fiction and this book almost felt a little bit like a dark comedy in a way. It didn't seem to take itself so seriously. The whole story is kind of silly. The movie I felt like did a pretty good job of capturing that tone also the movie wasn't that scary no and there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek a lot of funny quips by the by double entendres and whatnot by Leland it just I don't know something about it just didn't really feel as fun <laughs> as as it should have you know in movie form
1: I hear what you're saying I read the book too but Gosh, to say it in these terms makes me sound ancient, but ancient, but probably like a quarter of a century ago. Like it's been a really long time, and and I don't remember much. Yeah, I don't remember much about it at all, which suggests to me that it must not have been one of my favorites either. But I, yeah, I I get what you're saying. The other thing we chose this movie specifically because Max von Sydow plays such a pivotal role he really is the central antagonist and we had considered doing other movies that he had been in where he had smaller roles but we decided to go with this one because he was so prominently featured ultimately uh he just really plays kind of a puppet master and his role is fairly limited in that he's kind of confined to one location for the most Mm, part that's true
0: That's a very good point.
1: And he doesn't really do a lot. Like, he sets things in motion. But I mean, I guess that's his M.O. I can't complain about it if that's his character's M.O. But as far as Von Sydow's performance, he just plays it um, mostly just very gentlemanly, sophisticated, pleasant, really, for the most part. But he does, you know, there's... Clearly, a dark underbelly to all of what's going on with him. And he does revel in that kind of mischievous nature, and I really appreciate that about his performance. But yeah, it it feels episodic, because the the, the premise is, it's this small town, it's Castle Rock, Maine, where a lot of Stephen King's stories are set, and the beginning of the movie, it's this uh, sweeping flyover along the Maine coast, out to a lighthouse, which... You know, is the symbol the the logo for Castle Rock Entertainment, which, by the way, this is the first film uh, that that studio produced, I believe. And then you see this old, what was it like a Mercedes? I don't know, some old fancy black car. Speeding into this small town. And the residents are anticipating the opening of this new shop. This mysterious shop that they know nothing about. uh, Called Needful Things. And it turns out that Max von who is playing a character named Leland Gaunt, is the establishment owner. And right away, the store opens up. And basically what happens is people go in there... And Leland Gaunt um, kind of leads them to something very desirable for them, usually having something to do with their past. He provides them with uh, some token, like some token of memorabilia. For the most part, these people aren't able, because these things many of them are, in real life, cost probably thousands of dollars. He bargains with them, and he sells them to these people for very low prices, but an additional part of the price is that they also have to grant him a favor, which initially seems like not such a big deal, but ultimately that's what sets in motion kind of the collapse of the town.
2: Ninety cents ah well now we're getting somewhere Uh, not quite enough okay but an intriguing offer nonetheless let's call it half the price shall we yes half the price is 95 cents the price you pay in cash the rest the other half is a deed you understand? A deed? A trick. Well, more like a tiny prank. No big deal. And no one's ever going to suspect you. I promise.
1: It's an interesting conceit. But like you said, it kind of starts to get repetitive after a while. Which is why I think that it would work better in shorter increments. You know what I'm saying?
0: yeah it would and if you could really get into the people in the town like presumably there's other stuff going on one thing that's because i read the book fairly recently so it's it's easier for me to talk about it maybe one thing that the book does really well is there are a lot of people in this town this is another one of his novels it's fairly large and has a lot of characters and one thing stephen king loves to do for better for worse is really dive deep into every single character and give you a lot of their backstory through the story. Right. And so you really feel like you know these people when you're reading the book. And so what's happening to them and what's happening between them is extra interesting because of that. Whereas in the movie, we really focus on a smaller group of people. And I think that's out of necessity because of just time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the miniseries cuts out whole people like whole characters and whole segments yeah. necessarily. And like you said, it's probably a good thing. But we really are focusing around like five or six different people who end up intersecting with each other. And then at the end of the movie, it's like, oh yeah, and by the way, all these other people, you didn't see their stories, but we're going to imply that they, were, they had their own little bit here too and, and interactions with Leyland and the whole town's in chaos. Right. So we get to know these people, And then that just has to be applied to (laughs) the rest of the town by the end. And that was part of what was a little less satisfying, I think, about it for me. But like you said, would make it way more appropriate for something a little longer form and episodic.
1: And to be fair, the people that we meet are interesting and are played by good actors. Oh, yeah. One of the first people that we meet is a woman named Nettie, who's played by Amanda Plummer. Amanda Plummer is weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's Christopher Plummer's daughter. Um, and she's she's odd, but she's really interesting. And I, I like her. She was in So I Married an Axe Murderer. She was in Satan's Little Helper. She's been in... Pulp
0: Fiction. She's, she's the woman at the beginning of Pulp Fiction. And sitting across from Tim Roth And yeah.
1: she plays kind of a simple woman in this Who is concerned about the mystery of this shop We meet her right away She works in the town-like diner uh, Which is owned by Polly Who is played by Bonnie Bedelia Who is also very famous You know, she ha- doesn't do as much now as she did in the 80s But she was in Salem's Lot and many other things
0: Die Hard, Bruce Willis's wife, and die hard Oh yeah a Die Hard too, Yeah, I had yeah. forgotten about that That's where I always remember.
1: So, yeah, yeah, I always think of her from that, too. I I just had forgotten. She becomes right away in the beginning affianced to the sheriff of the town, Alan, played by Ed Harris, you know, who's huge, Apollo 13, a million other things. Mm. There's a, a kid named Brian Rusk, who is played by an actor named Shane Meyer, who I didn't really know for much except for that he played Matthew Shepard in the Matthew Shepard story, uh, which was really powerful, and I thought that he Mm. did a really good job in that. And those are kind of the main people, and, and those people then interact with other townspeople. And basically... What Von Sydow is doing is he's setting people up against one another without their knowledge. Yeah. He does that by establishing conflict between people and then using other players as puppets to escalate that conflict. Yes. It's actually, you know, his... He's a good planner, <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else. You know, I'm, I'm struggling even to because it really becomes kind of a complex web. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of difficult to, to lay it out.
0: Well, the first person that comes to his shop is a kid, and the kid that you mentioned, um, and his name is Brian. And he shows up, and the shop doesn't appear open, but the sign on the window does say open, and he walks in. Uh, and Leland, <laughs> it's interesting because I don't remember it quite this way in the book. In the book, it's not like he swoops in like a vampire, you know, where he's like all sinister from the beginning. He comes across as very affable to everybody. But Von Sito's character, Leland Gaunt, doesn't make the kind of entrance in this movie that I was expecting. He just kind of is there. He's a guy and he's very kind to the kid and and no real sly looks or glances or anything in the mm-hmm. beginning. He's actually very affable. Yeah. Even the camera treats him that way, you know, in the beginning, which which I was a little shocked by knowing where it was going anyway, you know. Right. He says, "Oh, we've got all these different things in the shop, something for everybody." And he says, do you like baseball cards? And he pulls out a signed Mickey Mantle baseball card that happens to be signed to my friend Brian. And he pulls his card out of his little card protector and is handling it so carelessly. I know. (laughs) That that was really distracting to me. Like, if I were the kid standing there, I would probably have a coronary just watching him doing this. But anyway, he's flipping the card around and he kind of does a little magic trick with it and is waving it in front of him. And the kid kids like oh my god yes and he reaches out and he touches it and now in the movie when people touch these items as well as in the book they get these sort of memories stirred up or dreams stirred up in their heads it's kind of a combination of both there's like an electrical flash and i think it's a little cheesy uh, to be honest, in the movie. But uh, anyway, they've got to do something, I guess. Right. And it's this little electrical flash and a spark, and they kind of convulse like they've actually been shocked. And then we get kind of a black and white flashback, or to their dream, or to their memory, or whatever. And, and he just sees, you know, Mickey Mantle hitting a home run and gets excited about it. He, the kid's like, how much is it? And Leland's like, well, let's bargain.
2: How much would you pay for this card, Brian? Hmm? Mickey Mantle. Tops, 1956. Signed to my good friend, Brian.
1: Uh, uh, no, listen, all I got here is... Shh,
2: shh, shh. So The buyer must never tell the seller how much he has. If you can't tell a lie, then be still. The first rule of fair trade, Master Brian.
0: Well, he ends up pulling out like 93 cents or something, and uh, the guy says, well, it's a start. Let's call it half. Uh, but for the other half, I need you to do me a favor. And we don't see what that favor is right away. Very much like in the book, uh, we just hear it, he asks for a favor, and then later in the movie we get to see them play out this favor. And he always poses this as just a little prank, just a little harmless trick or fun. Wouldn't it be funny to do this to somebody? And I thought it was interesting because at the same time this kid's having this interaction with him, we're getting Ed Harris's character, who is the sheriff who you just mentioned, go into that diner and propose to Polly. And it was just a little bit of an odd choice to intercut these two scenes because it was hard for me to get so invested in that scene and to feel that build of tension with this sinister character in this kid when it was jumping back to the diner in this, this nice little moment where he was proposing to her.
1: Yeah, I have a feeling that this was... The novel was probably a difficult novel to write a screenplay for because... In literature, I don't think that that bothers us as much, jumping back and forth between storylines. But I think that in film it seems more abrupt. So I I, I don't know. I mean, it didn't particularly bother me, but yeah, it does do that. But when you have such an expansive cast, you kind of have to check in with them if you want your audience to remember what's going on with them. You're right,
0: you're right, and the movie has to do that. But this was within a scene, You know, this was like a a five minute scene uh, that we were constantly checking back and forth between the two characters in their own little five minute scenes. I, I just, I didn't understand that. For me, it really neutered what was going on between this character who we just met and this kid, where there's obviously something sinister going on. I thought it just, it just leached that scene of a little bit of its power. But by the end of it, anyway, he signs the kid's name in a book. Yeah. And he's going to be adding all of these names to this book and checking them off as they uh, expire. <laughs>
1: <So> <laughs> right. <to speak. laughs> and the other thing, and again, I wish I remembered the book better, but the other thing that was kind of bothersome to me is that they had to establish conflicts between people really quickly. And so it kind of... Of seemed like, why do these people not like each other so much? Yeah. Like, w- one of the first uh, conflicts that's established is between Nettie, who's this nice, simple lady you know, who bakes pies at the diner. And this farmer, this turkey farmer named uh, Wilma Jerzek. And from the time that they appear on screen together, there's major tension between them that appears to only be because Nettie's dog barked at this lady. yeah, And, and because Nettie's dog barked at her, and I don't even think it was barking at her, I think it was barking at
0: Something Gaunt. else just surprised her.
1: Yeah, but then all of a sudden they hate each other. And then that's like one of the central conflicts and Wilma threatens to kill the dog. So the favor that Gaunt asks Brian to do is to go throw turkey crap all over Wilma's clean white linens and laundry that are hanging on the line and when Wilma returns home of course in very dramatic fashion she walks right through the laundry and is covered in crap herself and she's just sure that that darn old Nettie did it and so of course this plays out over several different scenes but she ends up going to the diner and threatening Nettie and threatening the dog and so then Nettie is all upset and she ends up going to Gaunt and... Again, it's difficult for me to not just kind of... I guess I'm just going to do it. The way that this plays out is that through these different machinations and through Gaunt asking other people to do favors for him in the form of pranks, each woman then blames on the other, legitimately thinking that they are in this conflict and they are pulling these punches at one another... Ultimately, Gaunt makes Brian go bust out all of Wilma's house, all the windows in her house, and basically just destroys her house with apples, which are like Nettie's signature because she makes apple pies. Gaunt also gets another guy, this character named Hugh, to kill Nettie's dog and not <laughs> only kill it, but like skin it and hang it up in her house. Yeah. Isn't um, that a fun, funny little prank, right? Yeah, right? You know, just 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 something simple, no big deal. What ends up happening is the two women who have both been ultimately offended at that point end up confronting one another at Wilma's house and they end up killing each other. Yeah. One with a butcher knife, one with like a meat hatchet or whatever you call those things. Cleaver.
0: Right in the face.
1: Right in the face. And it's it's fun. You know, that fight is fun and violent and between two women who you wouldn't expect to resort necessarily to that kind of violence. Uh, and it shows that Gaunt's corruptive nature is effective and what he does with those two women is the same thing that he does with everybody else it's just finding these cracks in their community finding these minor conflicts between people and capitalizing on them to cause just outright destruction within the community Um, and for a very long time it works and even though that's one of the things that I kind of don't really understand is that even though each of these individuals is being asked to do these progressively more malignant uh, pranks, nobody really puts two and two together. Like, nobody thinks that oh well I slashed so and so's tires and they think somebody else did it but or somebody smashed out my windows and it must be my enemy you know what I mean like yeah it's true they're they're all pretty naive but Who knows? It's an extreme situation.
0: And that's how I felt about the book, too. And that's why it was really hard to take seriously. And I think if you think of it more as a dark comedy, well more like a cartoon than anything else. It plays better. If you come into this looking for a scary horror movie, I think you're going to be disappointed. At least that's my feeling about it the other th- aspect that plays into that as well is just like you said, how extreme the characters have to be in order for them to expediate things. Mm-hmm. And so every character in this movie, although they're interesting is pretty extreme for whatever their particular characteristic is, you know? Oh yeah. Nettie, Nettie is like super mouse, mouse annoying and, and whatever. Uh, the mayor, uh, Danforth Keaton uh, played by JT Walsh, is like highly corrupt, super into gambling, screaming and yelling from the beginning at this deputy.
2: Now, Ow! Oh! Is this your name on this goddamn ticket, Ridgewick Or maybe this is some kind of forgery? You, not- you were parked in the crib space. The what? Wait a minute! You can't come no, in here. What? It's a handicapped space, and you've been told about it before, too, Buster. And you didn't told- Why didn't you call me? Did you call me, Buster? Touch me again, I'll throw you in the goddamn cell. I mean it. it's done for Danforth Keaton the Third, who is head selectman of this piss-pot little town, can get your ass fired off the police force and t- make that one second flat.
0: He's just a cartoon version of a corrupt city mayor who has a gambling problem.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just way over the top.
0: Oh, and then the town drunk is like drunk all the time and kicking the jukebox all the time and going in and out of the bar. We we hardly see him anywhere else. The priest and the pastor in this town. This is something that, you know, was heavily in the book and very light in the movie was this rivalry between the Catholic Church. This is so small town, and it's so true Yeah, in the Protestant church, what it, Baptist church, I guess it is in town. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Catholics are having a fun, just for fun, casino night, and the Baptists think that they're unleashing hell upon the earth by doing it. And so they're protesting it. And then the book, this protest is like a constant thread. It's like people are picking sides. And it's one of the main wedges that Leland uses to really put like the town at large against each other. Whereas in the movie, you barely see it at all. But when you do see it, it's funny because the Catholic priest who's played by... Um,
1: the uncle from Elvira. Yes, the uncle I don't know from Elvira. Name. That's all I
2: know him
0: as. That's all I care about. <laughs> William Morgan Shepard played Father Meehan.
2: Heed our warning. Give up your plan to turn this town into a den of thieves and gamblers, or you will smell the brimstone. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Psalms 917, the concerned Baptist men of Castle Rock. Is that Egypt, Reverend Willie Rose? Maybe you shouldn't have called a casino no Oh, night. for God's sake, Alan, it's only a little charity gambling. I don't know why it upsets the Baptist so
0: so funny, uh, the scenes with them. And, and it's just, it's so comical because it's so stereotypical, right? Yeah. It's always a joke, Catholics between the Protestants. And you just can't help but laugh at so much of what's going on. It's so petty and so silly. But, you know, it becomes a very, very big deal to these people. But it's really hard to believe, like you said, that in real life, that things would escalate so quickly, that people would get so extreme, and that people would just be so oblivious that they would never put two and two together.
1: Now that you talk about the humorous elements, I hadn't really thought about it, but it, it really is. Because meanwhile, you see all of these terrible things going on in town, and then it will just cut back to von out just like sitting in his shop, like, you know, tapping his <laughs> yes. fingers together and smiling yeah. like he-, he-, he like, my plan is working perfectly. <laughs> um,
0: it's really cheesy. It is cheesy.
1: And he hams it up a little bit. And also there are other things, you know, again, I don't remember the book, but like when he's interacting with people in his shop, again, he's very genteel, a good shop owner. He wants to satisfy his customers. and, And so he comes across as very nice. And he looks normal. He looks like this tall, elegant Man, in fact, everybody assumes he's European just because of his demeanor. Mm-hmm. But he, he claims to be from, like, Akron, Ohio yeah. or something. <laughs> uh, but whenever he's on screen alone, whenever whenever other people aren't around, there are physical manifestations of his true self like his teeth will get really nasty and yellow and black and his fingernails will be thick and long like you know demons or werewolves or something and he really is just kind of this grinning villain lurking in the background just watching his plans play out with such joy uh yeah it is funny and
0: and and he always has these quips i mean Almost every scene with him in it has some double entendre that has to do with devil or Satan. or Like when the Baptist uh, preacher comes in to his shop, he's got these posters because it's going around town, like, say no to the gambling or no to the Catholics. And I think he has a bumper sticker that says, uh, say no to the
2: devil. You're not Catholic, are you? You might say that I am, well, non-denominational. Ah, I knew it. And then you will have little objection to my placing this in your front window. Uh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. In, 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 I, like you, am here to serve everyone. However, my way of compensation, perhaps I may offer you something which might interest you. Say, so How about a, an objet d'art? Hmm?
0: And he points him to <laughs> where he just has on the wall all of these, like sexual artifacts like these phalluses uh-huh. and like a nude painting and whatever and, and the Baptist like starts sweating and kind of looking around like oh he kinda of wants to buy one but he doesn't want anybody to see and it's such a joke. You know of course he ends up walking out with something and bumps into the Catholic priest on the way out it's like oh, oh yeah and the byplay is so hilarious.
2: It was too hot in here Mr. Jewett just say the word afraid I have a tendency to turn up the
1: heat. He's just got little one-liners all over the place, like, you know, after Brian defiles the laundry, then Brian is feeling very guilty about it, and Gaunt comes to him again, and Gaunt says something like, you have something of mine that's not paid for yet, and, and Brian's like, well, I did what you asked. Um, we had a deal and uh, Gaunt says the dealing isn't done until Mr. Gaunt says it's done mm. so you know it's it's a deal with the devil story mm. you know it's it's the devil and Daniel Webster it's the devil and you know whomever but you make this deal with the devil and ultimately it's going to lead to your downfall and poor young Brian after he breaks the windows he's not actually witness to the fight between the two women but he is witness to the aftermath like there bodies on the ground Um, and he clearly feels guilty and he begins to confess to the sheriff but then he can't bring himself to do it and eventually the sheriff starts to realize that these things just don't make sense it doesn't make sense that uh, timid Nettie would bust out all the windows in this lady's house. It doesn't make sense that, that that Wilma would murder this woman's dog. And so he starts to think that something weird is going on and he goes to Brian and he finds Brian in a barn and he starts to approach him and Brian pulls out a gun. Uh, a gun that we had seen had belonged to that butthole guy Danforth before and these are just little pieces that I think were expected to put together but that I didn't entirely There, there was a line about it later Alan chastises Danforth for giving a gun to that kid I would have never put that Together, Um, but again, it's just all the machinations of Gaunt. So anyway, Brian has this gun and he holds it to his head and he says, "You know that that guy is a monster. He's not human." He says, "Don't go in that store. It's a poison place." Mister Gaunt is not a man. It's too late. I gotta go.
2: I gotta go to hell.
1: The sheriff tries to talk him down and is inching closer and closer to him. But as he gets close, the movie makes it seem as though Alan was able to intercede right at the last moment and that the boy did shoot himself, but it wasn't fatal. In the book, he committed suicide. I read that uh, the studio execs um, did not like the implications of a minor committing suicide, and so they cut away from it very quickly and had Alan immediately deliver a line to Polly saying that he's alive,
2: but... (laughs) Which uh, is
0: another thing. You know, Leland Gaunt to this kid in the book and also in the movie is probably the most brutal, right? I mean, he's the most... he makes his kid do several things. He's a young kid. He's he's fragile and emotionally, you know, not mature, and uh, just keeps piling it on him and forcing him, you know, to do this stuff repeatedly to the point where he basically drives him to suicide. And it's a really powerful moment in the book and also in the movie. But again, oh, he's okay. It lightens the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and and there's a little bit of that everywhere, except for the axis to the face and whatnot. Right. And that is what drives the sheriff to start to suspect Gaunt. That's another deviation from the book that I thought was interesting. In the book, Gaunt seems to be going out of his way for quite a bit of the novel to avoid the sheriff, like he's almost scared of him, like he knows the sheriff is a little too clever and he's going to lead to his downfall. Hmm. And so... The shop will be open for someone, and then they'll walk out, and the sheriff will try to go in, and suddenly it's closed. And a good portion of at least the first quarter of the book is gone trying to get information on the sheriff from these other people. Hmm. And so the movie... Like, within the first 10 minutes, the sheriff wanders into the place, and they sit down, and they have pie. So it do, it, mm-hmm. it does add a different feel to it, because in the book, you get this sense that the sheriff is dangerous to Gaunt. In the movie, you just get the sense that the sheriff is just another guy, and he just happens to be the guy that was smart enough to, to start putting the pieces together. Right. Uh, and he kind of retraces steps and talks to different people. And it all leads up to the conclusion, uh, um... I kind of want to
1: jump there. Well, I mean, there's... I mean, there's other stuff going on. I feel like, yeah, there is, and and I think it would just be foolish to talk about all of them, but he does... Okay, so the thing that bothered me a little bit about the sheriff figuring it out is it really only took one or two events for him to figure it out, and then from that point on, it was oh, it's him. I know it. He's the bad guy. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't... It's too simple. It, it, there wasn't much of let's put the pieces together. True. Or if it was, it just happened really, really quickly. The only other thing that I thought was... Uh, noteworthy is that gaunt is also able to drive a wedge between alan and polly his fiance um polly has uh, terrible arthritis in her hands and i don't even i think gaunt comes over to the diner under the guise of thanking polly for the pie that that she had had Nettie bring over. Somehow, he... I don't remember if he gets her to the shop or if he just has it on her or on him or what, but he gives her this necklace that magically cures her arthritis. Which, again, like... None of these people question the fact that they have magical dreams slash memories and that these items have these magical properties. Like they just go with it. Yeah. Uh, And and Polly just goes with it. And when she touches the amulet or whatever it is, the vision that she has is of her being seduced by by gaunt Mm. um which i guess ultimately is what is happening because later alan makes her question he straight out accuses gaunt and and she basically says no you know he's just a, a normal guy and but he does get her to question he gaunt also sets up via other People in the community sets up Alan to look like he's um, embezzling uh, and Polly finds that um, but eventually she does question the amulet she tries to like open it up and it shocks her and it falls to the ground and she falls to the ground and her hands are all gnarled and she's trying to pick up the amulet but she can't and then Gaunt just appears in her bedroom and puts it back on her, plants these seeds of mistrust about her fiancé, and then kisses her and has sex with her? I guess. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I was hoping maybe you would have some insight from the book that I don't remember, because that really seemed like the implication to me.
0: I do not remember that from the book. Uh, that... It maybe
1: it didn't it happen. It might at
0: all. not have, but but you're right. The implication of the movie is very much so. I mean she's almost basically I think she even literally says like, take me, doesn't she? I don't know. Something. He lays her back on the bed and you just get a shot up at him and he's like, I must say it's it's a pleasure doing business with you. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And yeah, that's the implication is that they did it. And whether or not she remembers it afterwards is another story. But because she certainly goes on throughout the rest of the (laughs) of the uh, of the movie, like this extremely significant thing didn't happen. But yeah, I, I sort of feel like, you know, part of this people not questioning these things. And I think it was, again, maybe delivered better in the book than it ever came across in the movie is that their suspension of disbelief, I think, comes a little bit from his power, just his sort of right. like a sort of hypnosis. They're willing to buy into this thing that they have or the magic that whatever is happening. It's kind of a fog in their brain that he is doing. But it doesn't come across so well in the movie, I think. That's another failure. Right. Just because it has to plow through all this so quickly. Yeah. That's
1: the yeah, the, I agree, and and it does make perfect sense that you know, like whatever he is, which is never really established, other than he appears to be immortal because um, Alan finds all these newspapers detailing various other catastrophes oh, I, I love that
0: part though communities. He, 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 he's like going through the dark place and he finds the newspapers like this is the big reveal right mm-hmm. this uh, Hitler you know invades blah 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 so and so was assassinated it's all these major massive events throughout history that that's implying that he's responsible for Right. but he's coming to this little town this little podunk town and just causing a bit of havoc with all these nothings <laughs> Right? don't you think he'd be somewhere in the middle east right now you know kind of like taking care of the bigger (laughs) stuff like he apparently used to in the past I i think this the implication is pretty strong he's the devil right i mean that's what i get out of it anyway yeah it's never said you're right but i think it's almost practically said through implication there's there's a funny moment where one of the guys i think it's when hugh goes in the drunk
2: oh jesus the young carpenter from nazareth I know him well. Promising young man. He died badly.
0: He's the guy throughout history that's caused everything. He's got to be the devil.
1: Yeah, I mean fair enough. I you know, I was reading stuff online and basically everything says, you know, it, it never really not I, in the novel and in the movie both it's never really confirmed one way or another um i read one thing that some people speculate that he is a similar being to like pennywise or the guy from the dark tower and the stand i I can't think of his name flag randall flag right um whatever ultimately it doesn't really matter he's a bad evil immortal guy i know you want to get to the end and i do too i I think that in order to do that we have to mention that that guy danforth who's this big over-the-top asshole he's just been getting progressively worse through the influence of uh gaunt as well to the point where you know he had conflict with pretty much everybody nobody liked him but uh ultimately uh he kind of loses his mind and he kills his own wife because he suspects her of having an affair with one of his enemies, which she didn't at all. Um but that was one of my favorite lines from the from the movie was when he's losing it and Gaunt approaches his approaches him and basically says, I'm not done with you yet, you know, get your stuff together. The guy's like I killed my wife. Is that wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And there's more to it than that. And and it's it's Funny in its ridiculousness, but um he he has become the, the kind of the ultimate pawn.
0: Yeah. He's kind
1: of the Renfield, I yeah, guess. Yeah, he
0: is. You're right. Um although he was never a sympathetic character to begin with. Mm-mm. He was kind of an asshole who you sort of feel is getting what's coming to him, but he ends up being, you know, kind of the linchpin in all of this. Right. I will say though, that that point in the phone that you were talking about, where he mentions that he kills his wife, he has a line where he goes but i really loved her yeah and th- uh, that was the only moment in this movie where i felt strong emotion i was like oh my god like that's horrible <laughs> you know yeah. he like has this flash of realization of what's going on and that was heartbreaking for me and it took me a good 5 minutes to get past that line and it was so out of place in a movie that otherwise is just so cartoonish that I was really shocked.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and he has been such a cartoonish character, but in that moment he's he's basically weeping. Yeah. Um and as much of a jerk as he's been, uh, you do empathize with him a little bit because just like everybody else, he has been manipulated, he's been played. Ultimately, he's gotten the short end of the stick. The beginning of the end comes with the two religious leaders, the priest and the pastor, right?
0: The priest is in his church. <laughs> All these people just basically stay in the, the domains in which they're supposed to be, I guess. Right. The priest is in his church. It's like late at night or whatever, but he's there. Ed Harris's character goes in to talk with him. At the same time, Danforth is in the back, basically digging into the graves of the graveyard behind the church and burying dynamite in there. But now you said he's kind of a broken man and he's sort of half into this and he's almost desperately doing it, even though he's kind of reluctant to, uh, and Leland actually shows up. It's one of the few moments where we see him outside of his shop Uh and, you know, lifts him in the air and is like, you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. And these moments in the movie where he is very sinister, you know, very uh, pushy and controlling to these people, and that's one of them. Anyway, while they're talking inside, uh, there's a big explosion, obviously, and it blows out the back of the church, and the pastor just—the preacher just knows— that it was the pastor and those Baptists that did it, and he storms out. And that explosion, suddenly the whole town is fighting each other. It's just like a light switch, like the streets were empty before this explosion. And now there's a car crash, and guy gets out of the car and and starts beating up the other guy, and and Ed Harris's character comes over and tries to pull him apart. Oh,
2: Fred! 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 what What are you doing? The bastard took my treasure island! What?! Robert Stevenson, first edition! The
0: sheriff sees that all these people are, like, brawling in the street over these minor deeds.
1: And Gaunt is just sitting up on the porch, just, Smoking. like, watching this all happen. Yeah. It's hilarious.
0: And this... Oh, God, this was so dumb. It's very different from the book, but I gotta say, like, the movie just went off the rails for me. Is uh, Ed Harris's character finally yells,
2: Everybody, Stop!
0: and everybody stops <laughs> suddenly and looks at him look at what he's doing to you and he basically lays out exactly what's going on you know and and then one at a time everybody speaks up and says confess I, I was the one who did this. I was the one who did that. I was the one who did this. I, I'm rolling my eyes at the screen at this point. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, the, the balloon of the film just kind of deflated for me at this point when I realized this was the kind of ending we were going to get. And I was hoping there'd be a twist or something, and there wasn't. This was it. And there's Gaunt on the porch, and Ed Harris swings around and points at him and says,
2: This, this man here, Leland Gaunt, God. We are waiting. He came here to destroy us. To make us destroy ourselves. Can't you see what's happening here? This is what he needs. This is what he wants. He's got us all lined up like a bunch of human fuse boxes.
0: Harris is trying to rally the town against him. And at that moment, Dan shoots through the window of Gaunt's place, he's been inside the whole time apparently hiding, shoots the sheriff in the shoulder the sheriff falls backwards and he comes out and it turns out he has explosives attached to him to which he seems to be threatening he's going to blow up the whole town right? with the explosives around his vest
1: <laughs> from the outside yeah <laughs> I mean I suppose I suppose Everybody. So uh, apparently, everybody in town is gathered I, in I, this I, square, I guess. Um, <laughs> and and I, I guess that they are in close enough proximity that they could at least be injured if an explosion were to take place. All two right dozen
0: of them. Yes, but
1: it is a little silly. Yeah. And this town, you know, it it, it seems like it's supposed to be at least an average size small town, but we're so confined by setting that it seems like it's all, the whole town is just this one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, and characters too. I mean, by this point we've only really dealt with a handful of people. So it hasn't had that expansive feel, you know, that the book has where it kind of reaches its tendrils out and you get to even get these tiny little stories and little bits and pieces to where you, you get a cohesive sense that the whole town is building towards this climax. In the movie, you get a sense that these half a dozen people are in conflict with one another. And once they all die, well, that's kind of the end of it. It isn't until this big brawl in the middle of the street that the movie tells you, oh, yeah, by the way, you didn't see it. But all these other people had all these other things go on and they're all mad at each other, too. It's just for time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, yeah, he threatens he's going to do it. And then, you know, he has his moment where he turns around uh, and is like, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Mm essentially yeah. I it's mean not it, literally but that's essentially what it is
1: <laughs> there's a couple minute scene where it's like Danforth with the devil on one shoulder and the angel yes. on the other and, and Gaunt <laughs> is the devil and the sheriff is the angel and Uh, Alan's like, you don't have to do this. This isn't really you. And uh, he's like, but I killed my wife. He's like, no, you didn't. Gaunt did. He made you do it. And um, Gaunt is like, quit being a pussy. Like, (laughs) uh, like, blow blow them up. And I guess the big mistake that Gaunt makes is that he refers to Danforth as Buster, which is apparently what people call Danforth behind his back, and he really hates it. And so um, Danforth approaches Gaunt and has words with him, says, and don't call me Buster, and grabs him and dives through the window of the shop, into the shop, and the entire shop just completely blows up, like huge explosion. And the townspeople are fleeing, and, but then uh, Alan with his deputy walks up into the ruins and here comes Gaunt just strolling out like, oh, well, guess you beat me this time. Yeah,
0: like, <laughs> it, it wasn't my best work. I have freely admit that. But, you know, we had a few laughs and it was good enough is
2: basically what he says. <laughs> well, and he says, In the meantime, you and Polly, you are too terrific, But You'll marry her, trust me. She's a lovely girl, Al. You'll have a wonderful family. Oh, oh, by the way, give my regards to your grandson. Bob will be his name. International trade, his game. I'll see him in Jakarta, 2053. August 14th, 10 a.m. A nice sunny day. We'll make headlines.
1: This also, to me, called back to the question of whether or not he had sex with Polly. I'm wondering if he's suggesting that Alan's son, first son, might actually be his. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. That's probably just me think reading about too that. much into it. But it, it definitely crossed my mind. Mm, interesting.
0: No, I didn't think about that, but... Yeah, it's a positive. But
1: in the in the book, though, I don't remember. I just read this. But in the book, he like reveals his true demon yeah, self, yeah, right? Yeah, he does.
0: And, and there's a whole... like The book is quite different because the sheriff is dealing with the loss of his, his son and wife, I believe, in a car accident or something. Yeah. Or something that he used to do with his son was magic. And, and so this is sort of this way that he kind of keeps his memory alive as he's always practicing these magic tricks. And somehow, I don't remember exactly how... But somehow he uses magic tricks, fake magic tricks, to oppose the devil or whatever, Leland Gaunt's real magic, uh, and somehow overcome him. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but it's, it's a little more sophisticated, to put it mildly. Than what we end up getting in this movie, which is just a bunch of Hollywood claptrap. It just... Yeah. I couldn't stand that ending.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was pretty anticlimactic, I guess. I mean, there's a big explosion. That's exciting. But then he Gaunt just drives away.
0: I don't mind him wandering out and driving away. That's totally fine. It's just the BS that came before it, where the, the big showdown in the middle of the street was just... So cliche, so melodramatic. Somebody made a choice, and that's the choice they made, and it just kind of made the movie a little lousier. I think in the book, the whole town does explode. I mean, I think he pretty much does what he came to do and then walks off into the sunset, slightly defeated, but otherwise, you know, similar implication, like they beat him back, but it doesn't really matter. Right. I I don't know. I didn't really like the movie, actually. (laughs) I don't know if I would have liked the movie better if I hadn't read the book. So recently, it was just a little too slow at times, a little too repetitive, a little uh, unsatisfying in in the ways that I've pretty much just described. And then it led up to that ending that was just a groaner. And uh, at that point, I kind of checked out. So I didn't enjoy it so much as as we enjoy. And Stephen King adaptations are always a little hit or miss and usually never as good as the book anyway. But this was definitely lower lower on that list than most, I think, for me.
1: Yeah, I I thought it was an okay movie. I didn't think it was bad. Um, The director doesn't have a lot of independent directorial credits. Um, He's done a lot of second unit stuff, and um, he has directed, uh, I think, like six or seven films of his own, but nothing else that I was really familiar with. And I just don't think that the direction, or maybe even the screenplay, was particularly strong. But from a visual perspective, I thought it looked good. Uh, and I thought that the performances were pretty solid yeah. based on what they were given. I thought that um, Ed Harris did a good job. I always enjoy Amanda Plummer because she's so weird and brings such a different vibe to every character she plays. And Bonnie Bedelia was okay. She didn't have much to do. And Max von Sydow. I think like the role was a good one for him it's just unfortunate that he didn't really have a whole lot to do Um, and we didn't get to see a lot of dynamics in his character yeah Uh, true but I, I think that that's kind of by nature of the character. He he plays it cool because he has very little to lose. Yeah. And so, you know, the the only time that he really kind of lost his temper was that time when Danforth was sniveling. And he grabbed him and picked him up and put held him up against the church. And I thought that was a really powerful moment. And it was shot from low. And it made Max von out look huge. Yeah. And it made... Danforth, by comparison, seemed very small and weak, Um, and and I liked that. I kind of wish that we had gotten to see more of Von Sydow throwing his weight around. But it it seemed like, you know, he was enjoying—he portrayed— what he was given well, and I enjoyed his performance. He was fun to watch, even though it was kind of low-key. So I don't hate this movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it was just kind of all right. Yeah. I know that I had seen it before, and I told you that when we were talking about what we wanted to do, but I didn't remember much about it. What I told you was, I think I remember it being kind of boring, and uh, I was right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: But a uh, great actor, um, very... I think for once, we actually picked a decent movie <laughs> yeah. for our tribute. Because a lot of times, some of these really, really great actors that end up passing away, their horror output's just not so strong, and it's not usually their fault. Right. This movie, like you said, um, with what he was given... He did a pretty solid performance, and just by itself, it's a solid performance. Just the nature of the character didn't allow for a lot of dynamics. Right. But you can see tons of other movies to see his dynamics. Uh, oh yeah, I'm a big I'm a big Ingmar Bergman fan. Uh, I've seen quite a few of those. Uh, that's the very serious Max von Sydow. Of course, there's The Exorcist. He's Father Marin in that, and The Exorcist too. He has yeah. an even bigger role in that because there's a ton of flashback there. It's a shame we won't ever get to do Flash Gordon because it's not a. Uh, a horror movie. But right. I, Emperor Ming and Flash Gordon is as a kid anyway, probably what I remember him from the most. I just I, that movie has a special place in my heart.
1: <laughs> yeah. He was he was a very, very cool, very, very talented man. He leaves behind a great legacy, which I say about a lot of people, but it's true. Uh so um kudos to you, sir. We're happy to have been able to pay a little bit of at least meager tribute. <laughs> great.
0: Well, thank you again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online. You can find us on Facebook. You can also find us on our YouTube channel. Just search for Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Leave us a message. Let us know what you thought of this show and request upcoming ones. We're going to dive into some requests here for the next month or so. So uh, keep those requests coming. We love to hear what you want to hear. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. <laughs>